Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. You know, I've been telling you there are many paths and tools for healing, and comedy is one of them. I think you will enjoy our podcast today, friends. Our guest, Dave Ebert, is the founder of Gifts for Glory Ministries. Dave is an improv coach, speaker, pastor, actor, and improv performer with his wife, Bobby, residing in Chicago, Illinois. Gifts for Glory is ready to provide high-quality, clean, family-friendly entertainment and professional improv coaching to survivors of sex trafficking. Hey, welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, really looking forward to having our conversation. Your bio is so impressive. I had trouble uh, shortening it for the intro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I try to provide enough information, but uh, I, I could have probably shortened it. But maybe it's because I'm a pastor. I just like to embellish and go on for a long, long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to fill in the blanks here and throughout our time together. I can't wait to hear some good jokes. We'll, we'll see what comes up. I'm an improviser, so nothing's ever planned. So if there's a moment of funny, it, yeah, I just give God the credit. And if there's not, it's just, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so tell us about your childhood. Were you always funny or into comedy? I really was. Uh, I, one of the earliest pictures of me, other than you know, baby pictures, uh, was an old Polaroid of uh, me flexing like I was in a bodybuilding contest because we were at the city pool and there was an actual like a swimsuit or bodybuilding competition going on on the other side. And my parents and their friends were just there at the pool. And I was like, no, they're not going to get the attention. I'm going to get the attention. So there's this picture of me flexing my little chubby two-year-old arms. And it was like, <laughs> I, I love to entertain and I love the attention and trying to uh, get people an opportunity to laugh. So yeah, pretty much my entire life, um, uh, I, I just liked it. I enjoyed and I lived off of people's laughter. Now, did you experience any trauma in your life? There were, um, there wasn't any like one singular event, like a, a massive, you know, tragedy. But my dad was in Vietnam. He's in the Vietnam War. And he got in contact with that chemical Agent Orange that uh, mm. you've heard about. And uh, that just ravaged his body. You know, when he hit 30, he was, you know, a healthy, strong, 30-year-old guy working in the trades. And he was disabled by the time he was 37, 38 um, from heart attacks, from just loss of uh, dexterity in his hands and uh, in, in losing his ability to even walk. And it was all uh, just a, a complications and, and complications from the Agent Orange. And so we were living in Chicago at that, you know, when I was first born. And then when he'd had his third heart attack, we had to move out of the city and get away from the fast pace of Chicago. 
and went down to Virginia where it's a lot slower lifestyle, a little bit easier for him to handle that kind of stress. But over the next 20 or so years, as his health failed, there are a lot of conflicts in the home between he and mom, between he and myself. And um, so it what it wasn't a tragic event. It was just this long period of watching my dad lose his ability to do the things that men do, like work with their hands, play with their son, hang out with their son, things like that. And uh, you're not able to handle that because we really didn't have a strong faith uh, base. So there was nothing kind of anchoring us in that storm. Mm-hmm. And so it was over, you know, two decades that, you know, there's just a lot of little traumas, little fights, uh, big fights and, and things like that. We said we were Christian and we went to church um, uh, fairly regularly, uh, mostly for holidays and potlucks. <laughs> but um, we uh, we said we were Christian, but it kind of only existed from 11 to 12 on, on Sundays. Uh, we lived decently. We weren't out killing people. We weren't doing drugs and <laughs> that. But... Um, but we weren't really like practicing. We didn't say, you know, grace at meals. We didn't pray together. We, I don't think I ever saw either of my parents actually open a Bible. So Mm. we were kind of Christians in name only. Um, We had the, the membership card went to the meetings, but we didn't actually do a lot of practicing outside of church. So kind of like Christendom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of kind of creasters with a little bit more regular attendance because the church I grew up in, uh, or at least as a kid, they had a lot of potlucks. It, it was almost like the one way to guarantee people would come. It's like, yeah, we're going to have a potluck to celebrate this this weekend. <laughs> and I love the potlucks because there's always at least five to sometimes six uh, different varieties of mac and cheese. And that's my favorite. Yes. Favorite. Yes. <laughs> mac and cheese. Yes. Mashed potatoes. <laughs> Mashed potatoes. Uh, all sorts of desserts. And uh, for your, your listeners, they won't know this, but if they see you know, my headshot or whatnot, I, I'm not a small individual, and I will put the blame s- firmly on that church with all the potlucks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they fed me, but not spiritually. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's so when did you meet the Lord for real? Well, my story is kind of unique, or maybe it's not. Um, but for me, it depends on what your personal theology is to interpret it. Going into my sixth grade year, uh, that, that summer before my sixth grade year, I went to a summer camp and I uh, went, you know, we had devotions each night at a campfire. And I remember on Thursday night, the day before, the night before we were leaving, that something at the devotion spoke to me. And I said, on my way by myself, said that little sinner's prayer of Jesus come into my heart. I want to make you Lord. Um, and, you know, I remember the prayer. I remember walking up that gravel driveway up towards the cabin. And, but like I said, it kind of hinted at, there wasn't a lot of discipleship for young believers at my church. So it was like, oh, I accepted Christ. What does that mean? What do I do with it? And so from that year, for many years after, I never really got truly discipled to understand what it meant to be a Christ follower. And through my depression and, you know, just some of the choices I made, I kind of walked away from that. So if you believe that 
you can walk away from salvation, then you could say that I walked away from it. Uh, some believe once saved, always saved. So you can either choose that summer or you can look to uh, January 2013 when uh, still wrestling depression, still looking for purpose in life. I was walking to work uh, on a Saturday morning and there were these two kids from a local Bible college out there looking for people to witness to. Uh, they had the uh, tract, which uh, for anybody that doesn't know, tract is a small graphic novel that uh, kind of tells the gospel story. And um, so they were out there and there's really no reason for them to be there because it wasn't a very populated area. Um, so there really wouldn't be a lot of people out there on a Saturday morning. So it was obviously a divine appointment and they gave me the tract and they offered to pray for me, but I didn't, you know, I, I kind of blew them off. Said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Yeah, I'm good, but I got to get to work. But because they were there, they passed out the tract. And because of a lot of stuff that was leading up to that moment, it was like, okay, God, I'm ready to submit. I'm, I'm ready. So that night I uh, opened up my uh, Rick Warren Purpose Driven Life. I started reading my Dollar General uh, King James Version Bible. Got all the way through Deuteronomy before I was like, I need something simpler. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, those two kids, I don't know if I'll ever see them again, at least not in this life. But they were kind of the straw that broke the camel's back to where I made the decision because I was still wrestling with depression. And I was literally at this place where I was on top of, I, I described it as I was on a peak of a mountaintop where I was still considering, you know, taking my life. So I could either go left and just take my life and, and end it once and for all, or I could go right and give my life and fully submit to God. And that was kind of the moment that kind of clinched it for me to take that step towards God and really for the first time pursue a relationship with him. So that was in uh, January of uh, 2013. So let's unpack the part where you talked about you wanted to end your life. What happened there? It was a, a culmination of a lot of things. I, I had a lot of dreams and ideals of what life should look like. And this started in uh, junior high and high school. Um, and then, uh, you know, combine that with uh, the struggle with my relationship with my dad, um, you know, not ever quite being good enough because he always had sometimes these surreal expectations. And, and when I didn't meet them, I felt like a failure and, you know, just all these different things. Um, it just added up to one night. I remember um, I w was pursuing this this young lady to date her in high school. And, you know, for the first time, I was like, this might be the one that I actually get her to date me. And Aww. then um, then the afternoon, after I talked to her in the morning, I saw her walking, holding hands with somebody else. And that was, you know, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back the other way uh, to where I entered into that depression. and. Uh, it just kept getting deeper. The more my dad and I fought, the more my mom and dad fought, you know, it just got deeper. And through my, um, my junior year, senior year, high school, all through college, after college for many years, uh, through my first marriage, you know, just that voice was always in the back of my head. You're not worthy. Um, mm. No one's going to truly love you. Um, might as well end the pain now. And so I just, I really wrestled with the idea of suicide. There were times that I was ready to do it, but I cursed myself for being too weak or too afraid to commit 
but looking back, it was that, as the Bible calls it, the still small voice that was, you know, just kind of coaxing me to don't give in just yet. Don't give in just yet. Um, so looking back, obviously God was there with me the entire time. It's just, I didn't realize who that voice was or why I was not able to fully take that next step. It was because God was there trying to yank and pull me back from the edge. Wow. I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate to um, the things that you're saying right now about wanting to end it all. Now, did you cover up your, your depression and your feelings? Did anybody else know about that? I covered it. Um, as I mentioned, I love to entertain people, make people laugh. So it started off very when I was very young. It's just this pure thing of enjoying the laughter and enjoying giving that gift to people. But when I entered the depression, it became a defense mechanism where I would keep people from seeing what I was feeling and also try to prevent them from feeling the darkness I felt. And if I could do that, if I could make somebody laugh, if I could entertain somebody, if I could make somebody feel better, then I was able to justify living for the next week or the next day or what have you. And so comedy or making people laugh was where I found my worth and my value. And if I went too far and I offended somebody, if I hurt somebody's feelings, uh, or if I said something that just kind of embarrassed me, it went into the spiral where it was like, see, you, even the one thing you count on for value, you fail at. And so wow. it would spiral me. And it was like, man, I just, I need to drive my truck off this cliff or I need to um, do this or that other thing to myself. Just, and I always wanted to leave it as an you know, make it look like it was an accident. Um, whenever mm -hmm. I really contemplated uh, suicide because I didn't want the embarrassment I didn't want people to judge me and say things about me. And I also didn't want the judgment to follow my parents or anybody else because I didn't want them to be punished for what I was going through. So I always tried to make it or plan it out to look like an accident. Um, one night in particular, I remember driving home late at night through the mountain roads. Um, it was maybe three or four in the morning and I just was at this breaking point and I prayed. I said, God, if you don't want me to do this, give me a sign, do something. And if you think about pure flicks movies or a Hallmark movie, you know, mm -hmm. you think in that moment, all of a sudden the sky opens and the light shines and the angels come down. And, but in that moment, it felt like it got darker. It almost, it felt like, like God actually got quieter than, than I felt he had been. And so and I got mad and I got angry at God and I, I think I probably said a few curse words at him and, and said, you know, whatever. And I got mad and I drove home, but here's the, the thing about it. I drove home. I didn't drive to the left off that cliff. And I, I say that that was a moment where God knew what I needed. It's not conventional. It's not what you would expect, but it's what I needed because he knew I'd go mad or I would get mad. And he knew that, he would have to take some barbs from me in that anger, but it was God laying himself down for me in that moment so that I would go home instead of, you know, take my life. And that's just another thing that I look back on and say, wow, God was there th th this whole time. Wow. I've never, I've never contemplated suicide myself. I've had some really dark times with 
my my abuse history. Mm. Now I've I've had depression before, mm-hmm. but it wasn't so much that I needed to take medication. Um, it was just this cloud of darkness and like sitting in a pit that you can't get out of and it's no amount of positive thinking is going to do it it just took a long time to get to crawl out of that these brilliant people you know we're talking about comedy and Mm. the most brilliant comedian was robin williams sure and he was so funny and yeah, when he took his own life after battling depression, uh, I really mourned his death. Yeah, it and that's one of the things where it shows that fame, fortune, having everything at, at your fingertips, it's not a substitute for anything. Because you look at Robin Williams, you think about even, you know, they don't classify it necessarily as a suicide. You look, But you look at somebody like Chris Farley, uh, John Belushi, um, the lifestyle that those two guys chose and the way that they treated their bodies was kind of a long-term suicide because they did not take care of their bodies. And I'm not talking about being heavy. I'm talking about the drugs, the drinking, the things like the partying for mm-hmm. hours upon hours on end. It was, they were trying to fill something in their soul that they couldn't fill. Um, so for, and I don't say these things as judgment, I say these things as warnings, um, heads up. If you see somebody that is trying to fill their life with partying, find the time when they're sober and talk to them. See if there's something going on. Uh, and like you look at somebody like Robin Williams, it's a very hard thing to know how to handle that because you don't know what his family life was like. Did he have somebody in his in his corner that knew what he's wrestling with and they were just happened to be gone in, in in the instant that he was the weakest. Um, for me, I think one of the, the biggest things is if you see somebody or know somebody that could potentially be similar to where Robin Williams was at, pray and ask for God to show you how to reach them um, and be willing to pursue it. Um, it's no, no two depressions are the same because no two people are the same. There's no blanket ABC methodology that's going to like, if I do these three or four things, I'm going to pull my friend out of what they're at because there's different triggers. There's different experiences. There's different chemical imbalances in the mind. So don't ever feel like a failure. If you try to help somebody and you can't see results because some people it takes time. Some people it takes the miracle of God flipping a switch and healing whatever chemical imbalances in the mind. Um, so my advice is always just keep pursuing um, because eventually there's going to be a breakthrough. It, because somebody that's in that mode is going to see that they're not going to give up. And that's going to fly directly in the face of so many of the inner voices or or the self-talk of I'm not worth it. Nobody's going to really care or I'm a burden. But when you're continually pursuing, you are speaking against all that and you're giving evidence against that case. And we all know, especially uh, as Christians, that those voices are of the enemy. So they're all Mm -hmm. of the king of lies. Yes. And when you can step in and bring the truth, 
and bring the light, the enemy has no footing left. So that's always my advice is just to keep pursuing him. And it's worth it. It's worth being able to pursue somebody and give them a chance to hope and a chance to fight against the lies of the enemy. I never know what to say to somebody that's struggling with depression. I'm always afraid that I'm going to say the wrong thing. Right. Um, so those those suggestions are really valuable because I don't want to push them too far, but I want them to know that I care. So yeah, and and here's the thing, and this is something that I whenever I talk to people, I I try to take this burden off your shoulders. It's not your job to save them. It's not oh. your job to rescue them. It's your job to be there and let God do the saving. It's mm. not It's not your job. So whatever words you say, whatever things you say, it's not going to matter because it's not going to be really remembered. The mistakes or, or the, the bad choice words or whatever you say that doesn't work, quote unquote work, it's not going to matter. What's going to matter is that person that you're pursuing, that you're fighting for, is going to remember that you were there. They're, they're going to remember your presence, not so much your words. Now, there will be some times where God will give you wisdom, and they'll remember those words of wisdom. But for the most part, they're going to remember that you were there. Just like when you go to a funeral, and you talk to the people that are grieving, uh, whether it's the widow, or the widower, or maybe it's uh, the child that lost their parent, whatever the case may be, they don't remember the words that you said as you go in the line. They remember your face. They remember the the calming touch on the shoulder, on the hands. They remember that you were there. And it was, it's very much the same for somebody that's in the dark pit of, of depression. If you're there constantly showing them love, willing to let them have what I call verbal diarrhea and just get whatever they're wrestling with out. They're going to remember that you were there and they're going to remember that. And it's going to be that evidence to say, Satan, shut up. You're Amen. not telling the truth. This person <laughs> is here. They see me as valuable enough to fight through this. So your lies of I'm not worthy. Nobody loves me. Nobody will miss me. Those are lies straight from the pit of hell. And that's mm -hmm. where you belong. That's right. Wow. No, that's that's really helpful comparing it to um, a funeral because uh, I just lost my brother December 5th. And some people, they don't know what the right things to say. And But you're right. I remember they cared about me. But yes, the fact that they took time to say, I'm praying for you or let us know if there's anything we can do to help you meant a lot. We appreciate those, uh, that advice for sure. Let's switch over something <laughs> a little funnier sure, okay. than a funeral. Um, so speaking of Robin Williams, he was a guest on Whose Line Is It Anyway? And it was yeah. my favorite episode ever. Oh, and yeah. you started a Christian version of that show. Tell me more about that. <laughs> Absolutely. So when I uh, rededicated my life to the Lord in January of 2013, I knew that performing and being on stage was my calling. God was going to keep me in front of people, keep me entertaining people, but he's changing and he changed the reason why. Instead of trying to hide how I felt and hide myself, I was now going to use comedy as a way to reveal who he is. And 
I had no real opportunities uh, in Beckley, West Virginia. Nothing against West Virginia. Uh, I have a lot of friends back there. I had a lot of great experiences, but it wasn't where God wanted me. And so I was like, so God, where do I go? Do I go to Roanoke, Virginia, which is about three hours west in uh, West in in West in Virginia? Excuse me. And uh, that's where my mom lived. Do I just move in with her and start over? And it was kind of like, you could, but that's not really where you belong. So I kept like reading Rick Warren's book. I kept reading the Bible. And finally, in a, in a conversation, my sister, who doesn't really have a relationship with the Lord, but he used her. She said, well, if you want to, you can move up here to Chicago and, and uh, start over here. And I said, are you sure? Because she was going to college at the time and I would be moving in on staying on her couch in her studio apartment. And I was like, are you sure? She's like, yeah, if you, if you need a new, you know, new start. And so six weeks later, I left uh, West Virginia, everything I could pack in my truck, I brought up and I started completely over in, um, in March of 2013. And it was shortly thereafter, I started pursuing acting opportunities and opportunities to be in front of people couple of movie, short films I got into, I realized after accepting the part, I shouldn't have done this role. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this will be something that if I ever become famous will be one of those things that they play to, to tease you when you get like a Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, yeah. Um, and then through Craigslist, I connected with a, a, a guy um, named Ryan McChesney. And he and I uh, discussed you know, doing uh, movies together or something like that, uh, faith-based. And we said, well, we both like improv. He had gone through the Second City, uh, Second City uh, Chicago Conservatory. I had um, done a few classes at Second City, but uh, uh, most of my acting and performing training came from eight years of uh, pro wrestling in uh, West Virginia and Virginia. Um, so we thought, well, what if we started a, a faith-based improv team? There's nothing like that in Chicago. And we thought that there was almost nothing like that in the rest of the world. So uh, we decided to start trying to cast and we uh, brought two more people on. And my church at that time was uh, very uh, gracious in allowing us free reign to use the building for rehearsals or anything else we wanted to do. And so we just started uh, creating an improv team. And for anybody that's not really familiar with improv, uh, uh, Diana, as you mentioned, uh, whose line is it anyway, is kind of the same kind of improv that we do where it's uh, game-based where they'll give us a game with a scenario and certain rules within that game to follow and the rest we make up uh, we make up the characters the dialogue is completely made up and the idea is not to try to be funny but just to try to respond in the moment because that's where the funny is going to come from is that the just that creative mind that we have it's going to find things that are funny in our natural reactions. And so what we do is we just create scenarios. It's basically like a more organized way to play pretend. Uh, we create characters, voices, points of view. And so we, and we don't do it based on the Bible because we don't want to ever get careless and misrepresent the Bible or say oh, something. Okay, that's fair. Uh, we don't want to ever come across as a Christian improv team that is uh, disrespecting the Bible. So we just do clean comedy that's accessible for all ages, whether you're five or 105. 
Um, we want you to be able to come and enjoy and laugh. And um, we kind of filter it through Philippians 4.8, whatever is pure and lovely and praiseworthy. If it kind of fits along that, then, uh, then we're good. Um, and we just, um, we go out and use it as a ministry tool. Uh, either we open for a speaker and use laughter as a way to tear down some walls and, and make people comfortable enough that they can hear it. Mm-hmm. Or we just do pure comedy with the love and the joy of Christ and allow our presence and the fact that Christ is coming in with us to somehow reach them on a spiritual level to where they'll either ask us, why are you guys clean? Why don't you curse? Or why don't you do innuendo or blue? Or they track us down on social media and they're like, oh, they're Christian and they're funny (laughs) and they're creative. Maybe God is more than I thought he was. I'm not naturally funny. Uh, my husband is. <laughs> and, and that's the, the thing is, you don't have to be funny to be good at improv. You just have to be willing to listen and respond naturally. Because most of what's funny in our improv, at least, is that people recognize either weird quirks uh, about themselves or about people that they know, or they recognize weird characters that they're like, that's Samantha from work. Oh my gosh. Um, and it's that recognition of, of the human experience because we are so much alike there. We're, we are all more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. And when we share those experiences, we realize that we're not alone, that we're not this weird thing in the middle of the world that has no connection. When we get a room of people laughing together, even if none of them know each other, they connect, uh, on this really interesting level when they laugh together, they don't feel alone in that room. And that's why comedy is so important and effective in speaking and in ministry. If you can get, get them to laugh, there's a wall that comes down to where now they're able to receive uh, some information or receive the word or receive the message. And uh, you know, that's what we love to do is to either set the ground for a speaker to bring the word or to just simply be a light in that room to where there's a question, why, why are they different? And um, that's what we do now. Uh, We've been, uh, this team has been running since uh, July of 2013. Um, We've had a lot of changes, a lot of turnover, but the the mission has always been the same is to just use comedy to bring people closer to God. So you can um, definitely use comedy to heal people Mm -hmm. in their pain. And you got connected with uh, Salt and Light Coalition. So tell us more about that. Sure. Uh, Salt and Light Coalition is an organization that works with uh, women who have survived sex trafficking. Uh, Many of the women that they serve uh, were sold into trafficking by Mm. their parents at a young age. So many of them either have a very short if or maybe a non-existent childhood to uh, draw from. So they're very stunted in many areas as far as emotions, uh, uh, especially the ability now to trust people. And so, and most of them obviously have been hurt and used and abused by men. Mm -hmm. So the fact that me as a guy was asked to come in and serve, the weight of that is not lost on me, but I also see the benefit because here is a man in a healthy relationship with his wife 
who is in a healthy relationship with the Lord, who can come in and bring that as a model for these women to show that it is possible that not every single man is a creep that's going to hurt you. Right. And I, I value that ability to, and that opportunity to bring that example uh, to them. And I teach improv as a way to improve their communication because uh, many of them, like I said, had are stunted either um, educationally, either they were, they had to drop out of school because they were doing what their handlers or pimp or whatever you want to call them were making them do. And so I go and help them improve communication, uh, find and develop their self-esteem because when you're learning improv and you're creating stuff together, you're starting to realize, wait, I have a voice. I have something to say. And the things that I say can be valuable. And that only helps to improve the self-esteem. So they start realizing that all the stuff that I've been through in the past is my past and all the work that I'm doing now to get back on my feet and rebuild my life. I'm worth it because I have something to say. I have something to contribute. So we do that through improv and, and at the end of the day, they get an hour where they can laugh like kids either for the first time or laugh like kids again, because, it, and, and it, I don't say these things to brag on me. Mm-hmm. God put me in this position. There was, there's been several times where the women have, or a couple of the women have come in and you could see that they are literally carrying their world on their back. The burdens are there. The brow is furrowed. The, you could see in their eyes that they're waiting for somebody to say that one word so that they can explode on them. Mm -hmm. And part of what they have to do is they have to participate even if they're not feeling it. So they, they still get in the circle. They still participate in the games and you can see literally that facade crack and fall. You literally see them crack up and within five minutes of participating, the burden is gone the the fierceness in their eyes the the anger or the frustration or the hurt it it fades away and they get to forget that and realize that there's hope that there's something bigger than what they're wrestling with in that moment and that has been such a huge blessing for me to be a part of that for the last couple of years and um and like i said it's it's such a blessing to to be a man in that position to kind of be an ambassador, literally an ambassador for Christ to show that it's okay to, to trust again. And I, and I love doing that. That is incredible. You know, I've had some training in sex trafficking uh, with Menning Nassau. We have a program called Princess Lost, Princess Found. Okay. And I didn't know anything about sex trafficking before that or mm-hmm. thought of all the, you know, what the rest of the world thinks about prostitutes or sex workers but it really that training had opened my eyes do you have a story of one of those tough nuts that cracked open with your your comedy improv class yeah um specific i can't mention names obviously no yeah but uh the one lady i think of in particular she's a single mom she was uh sold by her mom into trafficking, you know, into, you know, for sex because her mom needed a hit. She needed a a fix. And so she 
gets involved and then she gets traded, bought and sold. Um, and the thing, what, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is people who are in that life, who are stuck, who are, who are trapped, they're not always stuck in some shady building off in the corner of the city. Right. They're, they're still out walking around. They're going to the store, but they're in such a way that they don't think they can escape and they don't know who they can trust. Mm -hmm. They don't know if the person that they're going to talk to to say, Hey, I need help is connected to this person that they're, that they're uh, enslaved by. So they feel like they can't trust anybody even though that they're out walking around, they're, they're stuck. And they're also many times they're forced to take drugs. Yes. So people will dismiss them when they see them like, Oh, she's just a junkie. There are a lot of junkies, but there's also a lot of women and and some men that are on drugs either because they're trying to cope with what they're being forced to do, or it's part of what they're required to do in order to survive. Um, and, and the, the, the pimps know that when they're on drugs and they're high, people will dismiss them and won't really give them two looks. So all that to say is th this young lady, she's, I think she's in her mid twenties now, mm -hmm. uh, single mom struggling to get her kids back because in, in the eyes of the court system, she's just a junkie. She, it, it doesn't matter why she was on drugs. It doesn't matter what, caused her to be arrested for these different things. All that matters to them is that she, you know, you were high, you're on drugs, you have this in your system, you're not fit to be a mom. So she's trying to rebuild her life, trying to get her kids back. And one day, I don't know, I don't know the details because I don't really talk to get to know them much just because mm -hmm. they're trying to you know, want to protect them because the fewer people that know the stories, know where they are, where they're from, the better for them so that they can avoid getting um, found by the people that are looking for them because mm -hmm. when a woman or you know when a, uh, somebody escapes sex trafficking that's property in the minds of the people that quote-unquote own them yes and they don't like to lose property because they're losing profit so they you know i know very little about them i know their i know their first name i know a little bit about their story some of their stories come out as you know part of the improv but she's trying to get her life back together. She comes in and she's the one that I always envision when I talk about the cracking up. Um, she came in and I swear, I, I, there was a moment where I was worried. It's like, is she going to fly off on me if I say the wrong thing? Cause she just looked angry at the mm -hmm. world. And uh, fortunately, you know, I, and obviously they're not going to leave me in the room alone. So there's a couple of the, Salt and Light volunteers there just to supervise and to coach and say, hey, you need to go ahead and get in the circle and, and participate. You know, this is part of the program. And so, you know, she came in, arms are crossed, and she's just looking down at the ground. And so I just changed my plan and I opened up with uh, a warm up that I knew everyone enjoyed. Um, and it's a silly game. It's called Bippity Bippity Bop. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so this game, uh, somebody's in the middle of the circle, they go around the circle and it's, it's a quick response game. I'll look at you. And, and if I say bippity, bippity bop, you just have to say the word bop before I get to bop. And then there's other layers to that game. So 
I start the game and say, all right, so we're going to warm up with bippity bippity bop. So I go around the circle and there are a couple of times where like, as I'm going around the circle, I look at her, like I'm going to give her the, you know, the, the uh, interaction, but then I go past and then I come back and then I get her the first time. It's like bippity bop. She you know, obviously wasn't ready because she's not fully into it. So she goes, all right, uncrosses her arms, walks in the circle, starts doing it. And as soon as she starts participating, you, that's when it starts cracking up and she starts laughing and, and having fun. And she became, she was two people. The first five minutes, she was one person. And then once she started to laugh, she was a completely different person. And it's like, yeah, God, this is why, this is why I'm here. And again, it's not, Hey, Dave Ebert's wonderful, you know, toot the horns. It's like, God put me in this position to use my testimony, my story to, and my experiences to try to help in the healing process of, of some women that desperately need healing and desperately need to know the love of Jesus. I love that story. You know, the biggest thing I learned in, in my training that I went through was a lot of these women are in this predicament at no fault of their own. They were, mm -hmm. they were groomed or they were kidnapped or they were, you know, trafficked by somebody that they trusted mm -hmm. or they should have been able to trust. And that these, these ladies and some gentlemen, yeah. valuable people loved by God, they're not trash and not somebody that we, you know, we throw away or toss aside. They are, they are children of God and they need Jesus too. Yeah. And, and these are all people that, and I, I don't like think, or in my heart, I don't believe that Jesus means this in his language, but he's talking to us in our language when he talks about the least of these, mm -hmm. because he loves us and God loves us equally. And there is no true least in God's kingdom, but I think it's, it's Jesus dumbing down the language so that we would understand. And that's why he's like, what do you do to the least of these? you do to me. So yeah, there are people who are out there who are high on their own accord, doing their own thing that are just throwing their lives away because they think it's fun, but you don't know until you know. So don't, I would just ask, never dismiss somebody because they look like a junkie or they mm -hmm. look like they've made some bad choices because maybe they have, or maybe they're stuck in a situation and I would always encourage, if nothing else, pray for them. And mm -hmm. maybe in that prayer time, God's like, hey, that, that's somebody that needs you. But if you're willing to just dismiss everybody because they look like they're scarred from injections or they, their face is broken out from different things, if you just dismiss them automatically, then you're blocking God from reaching you to tell you, hey, they need your help. And God's just going to have to find somebody else and you're going to miss the blessed opportunity to reach somebody that needs the love of Christ. Amen. What are you up to now? What uh, you have any new projects in the works coming down the pike? <laughs> when you said, what are you up to now? I was going to say <laughs> six foot two. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, right now, uh, because of uh, the global thing that's going on and yeah. I'm in Illinois, so theaters aren't open. We're not doing much as far as the comedy. Um, you know, so everybody's kind of focusing on their family. One of the things I have been doing is connecting with other Christian improvisers and uh, we're uh, doing 
semi uh, maybe once a month uh comedy shows where we just get together and we've never practiced before we've never rehearsed but we're going to put out uh, some shows where people can just watch online watch us improvise and participate uh those uh will broadcast live on my facebook page and i'll advertise those that you know about a week in advance once we get people able to commit to a date um and the our first one that we did we had somebody from West Virginia, somebody from Arkansas, two people from Texas, and, um, and uh, yeah, I think that was it. Um, oh, I had one person uh, from Ohio, I believe. So we had like a conglomerate of people from all over the, the nation coming in. Uh, we've never practiced before, but we did improv. And improv and Christianity are so much alike because to do good improv and to be a good Christian quote unquote, good Christian, <laughs> you need humility. You need to be willing to support the other person and you need to be willing to love the other person so that they're successful. Um, so when you come into an improv stage as a Christian improviser, I mean, you've got all the tools just built in. And so we go, we perform online. We're willing to support each other and it makes it really fun. Now, the way we do it, we don't have crowd, exp you know, re reaction, but because we're together, we kind of know what's funny and we're like, okay, this is, you know, we can laugh at each other and uh, it's just really a lot of fun. It's nothing like the real improv of being on stage and no. intimate experience, but it's a good substitute. It, it's a good gap filler until we can get past all of what's going on. Yeah. So your, um, your post on uh, Christian creatives are on the same group yeah. and I'm going to see if I can try and watch that. That'll be fun. This has been great. I I so appreciate you coming on the show today and putting up with the uh, the Zoom demons <laughs> earlier. And wow. I know you don't do this for you know reward or pats on the back, but you know, from me to you, thank you so much for what you do for the Lord and what you do for these ladies, um, because you are changing people's lives and making a difference. So. Thank you very much. Thank you. So tell the folks how they can connect with you if they want to know more information about your ministry. Sure. Um, I have uh, two, well, I actually have three primary things that I'm involved with. Uh, Gifts for Glory is the kind of the umbrella over everything. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Gifts, the number four, Glory. And uh, that's where my podcast is. That's uh, kind of the over... Um, Cor corporate umbrella over um, my personal uh, speaking and improv coaching where you can find me at uh, real Dave Ebert. Um, there's actually another comedian who's also from the Midwest, uh, not a Christian uh, who's, his name is uh, Dave or David Ebert. So, uh, so I beat him to the punch and I took the real Dave Ebert. Oh, <laughs> glad you mentioned that. <laughs> um, which is hilarious because on Twitter, I'll often get tagged in things that have nothing to do with Christianity or ministry. And it's mm. like kind of embarrassing. Don't and so I'll respond and I'll be like, hey, I think you meant this guy. Um, but uh, thanks so much for the shout out. <laughs> you don't want the credit for some dirty joke, right? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I... I <laughs> 
unfortunately before christ really took over my life there i did say quite a few dirty jokes especially in wrestling locking rooms (laughs) um but uh that's washed by the blood and forgiven and Mm -hmm. um but yeah uh, so at Real Dave Ebert is how you can find me. And there is one thing I do like to uh, share on any, every interview is um, if there's somebody out there that hears this podcast and you're somebody that's wrestling with depression or considering suicide, uh, my email box is open to you uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, it goes directly to my phone. And this is an email address I'll always keep active. So if in 2035, somebody picks up this podcast, that email will be available barring rapture. Um, and I say yeah. that kind of tongue in cheek, but uh, if you're somebody that's wrestling, I really want to hear from you and want to walk you through it. Uh, my email address is Dave at gifts, the number four glory.com Dave at gifts for glory.com. And uh, I'm not going to preach at you. I'm not going to just copy and paste a bunch of scripture. I just want to hear what your story is and I want to walk with you through it. I know that, in my depression for me, I feel like had somebody had that option where I could talk to somebody that didn't know me, that didn't have mm-hmm. preconceived ideas that I'm, I would have been willing to just open up. And I'm hoping that, uh, even one person, if you need that and you just, and I referred to it earlier, that verbal diarrhea, just like l- let it pour out. <laughs> uh, my dad was a military man. I was in wrestling for eight years. There's not a curse word I haven't heard. So if you need to curse in your email, don't feel like, oh, he's a pastor. I got to edit. No, don't worry about that. Just tell you're me what you're person. going to uh, Yeah. And I want to be there and I want to help in any way I can. If it's just listening and reading your email and just sending a few words back, that's what I want to do. So that's open for you. For And if you're somebody that knows somebody that's not able to ask mm-hmm. for help, uh, you know, contact me and I'll be happy to uh, to do what I can. That is so awesome. Thank you so much for, for being a resource for, for the listeners. And I hope those that are listening will take advantage of that opportunity. And I I love your podcast. I, I listen to your podcast every week and you have some great guests on there. And we seem to agree on a lot of things. <laughs> we seem to be on the same page. So thanks again for, for coming on the show tonight. I wish you a happy new year. Thank you and... so much you as well. And uh, I hope that uh, uh, DSW Ministries takes off in the new year and that uh, you meet every goal that, uh, you've, that you've set forth. God bless you, Dave. Now I will put all of his information in the show notes for everybody. This is a new year, so I decided to change up my tagline at the end of the show. You are never a victim when you choose to take action. Remember that, friends. So we will see you all next week. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.